What a joy and delight it is to be here with you all. And um, let me just say how much uh, I love uh, what God is doing in this church, um, how much I love your pastor, Dave Lomas. I, um, I speak at a few things outside of my church throughout the course of a year, and um, you know, it's always kind to thank the leadership, and sometimes you have to work a little bit harder to find some kind things to say in certain settings, but this is not one of those settings, and um, I, I want you, you all to understand you've been entrusted with some really great, authentic, caring, godly leaders who, of course, are not perfect, uh, but don't take that for granted, and I pray that you are not idolizing your leaders, uh, but that you're honoring them and that you are praying for them. And I want to encourage you to excel still more. Um, Dave, is that everything you wanted me to say to them? <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. Kidding. He, 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 did, he did not say any of that to me, and I mean everything that I've just said 100%. Let me also say, I was, uh, I was on a prayer uh, walk uh, in your city uh, yesterday and was, um, you know, was actually walking, prayer walking through the Castro with the, uh, with the um, agenda of praying for our friends and uh, the LGBTQ plus community, and immediately the Holy Spirit just uh, convicted me of my own self-righteousness uh, in that. It's not that they don't need prayer, but... I need prayer right alongside of them. And in the middle of all that, I, I just want to say um, just how thankful I am that Reality San Francisco, among other churches, uh, is in this great city, um, this dark city as well. And um, I believe that you are uh, a restraining influence against the forces of darkness that God is using uh, to bring glory to his name. I believe by, the, by your very presence and seeking of God that in ways you don't even know, this city is being blessed. My grandmother had a saying, it's a very popular saying in the traditional black church, that God has kept us from danger seen and unseen. There's stuff we don't even know about that God has kept us from. And God is faithful. And what's true of us, I believe, is also true of our city as well. Let me pray for us. I pray for Reality San Francisco, God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Pray that you would give them ears to hear as they are discerning. Um, as it relates to a new facility, a new location. I pray that just as the children of Israel were in the wilderness, that Reality San Francisco would not move until they see your glory cloud, your pillar of fire move. And so God, I, I pray that you would do that. Now, Father, would you speak to us from your word? Pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground. Pray that it would take root. Pray that it would bear much fruit. Uh, encourage where appropriate, challenge where appropriate, um, save. I believe someone online in this room um, is not a follower of you. Save them. 
Take them from death to life in the name of Jesus, but ultimately transform us. It's to that end that I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Her name was Florence Chadwick. That name might be familiar with some of you. She was Californian. 1952, Florence Chadwick uh, decided that she was going to swim the 26 miles from California to Catalina Island. Um, and this seemed to be a piece of cake. Just a couple months earlier, she had uh, swum the, um, swam the English Channel. Um, and so here she is, she gets into the water, not long after being in the water, a thick, heavy cloud of fog begins to descend. She's in the water for 15 hours. She can't see. Um, she's giving it her best. Best of intentions, best of desires. After 15 hours, um, like Roberto Duran some decades later, she said, no mas, I can't, can't do it anymore. So they pull her out of the water, unbeknownst to her, one mile from the shore. In a disappointing press conference at the end, she said these words. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. A couple months later, Florence Chadwick, glutton for, pun for punishment, gets back into the Pacific Ocean. Um, she's gonna try to swim again, California, Catalina Island, 26 miles. And wouldn't you know it, again, fog descends. But this time she makes it. Afterwards, they asked her, what was the difference? Same set of circumstances, same distance, same grueling effort. She said the difference this time was vision. I had a vision of the shore in my mind, and I was going to swim towards that shoreline. Reality San Francisco, vision is not an elective. It's core curriculum. Helen Keller was once asked, that famous blind and deaf woman, very insensitive question, someone asked her, Helen, what's the only thing worse than being blind? I wanna just smack him, right? She responds, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. The Bible says without vision, people perish. That God has created us, made us in the Imago Dei. And he has a shoreline for your life. You and I have been created on purpose and for a purpose. And don't let the prosperity preachers mess that up. I'm not here to talk to you about your best life now from the standpoint of material riches and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, God has created you and there is a calling on your life. Romans 11 says that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And what's true back then is true now. That God is not on the history channel. There's a vision for the reality show that is your life. What's true of you personally is true of this church corporately. I believe when Adam and Eve were running around the garden looking for a fig leaf to hide under, that he saw reality San Francisco, that he raised this church up for such a time as this.
that he destined and situated you all for this cultural moment to bring him glory, to advance his purposes here on earth. There is a shoreline for this church. There is a shoreline for your life. I mean, some of you all are just feeling it right now. There's, there's dreams, there's, there's a vision that he's birthed inside of you. There's things that, that you're seeing for your life that are Ephesians 3, exceeding and abundantly above and beyond all that you can even imagine. God says, my dreams are bigger than your capacity to dream. Some of you don't even dream because it's a self-protected mechanism to keep you from being disappointed with God. God says, I've got big things. And if you could accomplish it on your own, you don't need me. I have a shoreline for your life. How do we get to vision? How do we experience that? That's why I want us to be in the book of Joshua. We're gonna bounce around from place to place all throughout Joshua, but if there's one word that sums up Joshua, it's really this idea of vision, or better yet, the, the word destiny. It's the word destiny. After many, many years, and we'll talk about this in just a few moments, after many, many years of just wandering around from place to place, finally, they're ready to settle in to what God has ordained for them. And yet, when we talk about the people of God actualizing God's shoreline for their lives, the book of Joshua gives us a fourfold process for experiencing destiny in our lives. This is true not just of the people of God, it's true of you. And it's true of this church. Here it is there's going to be opposition, conflict, destiny, and remembrance. Opposition, conflict, destiny, or blessings, and remembrance, and in the middle of all that, none of that happens without faith. So I want to unpack this for you. When the people of God finally show up, I mean, we can go all the way back to Abraham. God shows up to Abraham and says, listen, I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And through you, all the people of the world will be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. There's no way you and I can understand our Bibles unless we understand the Abrahamic covenant. Tom Nelson says the Abrahamic covenant, he uses a sports analogy, it helps us to palm our Bibles. God is saying, I want to use the Jews as a mechanism to bless the world. His heart has always been for the world. His heart has always been a multi-ethnic vision. But the portal that he was going to use are the Jewish people. Illustrations of this abound. I could talk to you about Abraham's, uh, one of his uh, uh, descendants, a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph, a Jew, becomes second in command uh, in the nation of Egypt. The whole world literally seeks an audience with Joseph, and he blesses the world, helping to navigate the world through a famine. This is the Abrahamic covenant. It's the book of Daniel. Daniel is the Abrahamic covenant in real time. God taking a Jew and blessing pagan Babylon, Je Jeremiah 29, in whom God had called them to. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ. Jesus, this Jewish God-man, comes in the flesh, dies on the cross, so that the whole world can be reconciled to God through Christ. 
This is the Abrahamic covenant. God says, I'm going to take this people into a good land. They end up in Egypt for centuries. They're serving as slaves, and one day God shows up to Moses through a bush that is burning but is not being consumed. And he says to him, listen, I've heard the cries of my people. I I know I seem distant, but I've, I've heard these things, and it's time to deliver them, and I want to use you that way. And so now he delivers his people, but what should have been a six-week journey turned into a 40-year debacle. Why? Murmur, 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 grumble, 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 a complete lack of faith. I wonder, by the way, how many of us God is saying, hey, look, in my perfect plan, we should have turned the page by now. We should have been in the next chapter. Shoot, we should be in the next book. But your refusal to walk by faith has you in a holding pattern around your own Mount Sinai. Faith is what actualizes destiny in our lives. And now, after decades, they're finally ready to push through, and what's the first thing that they experience? Opposition. It's the Jordan River. They get to the Jordan River, and it's not just any old time, it's harvest time. And what harvest time means is this is the time of the year when the Jordan River's banks are overflowing. It's impossible to cross on their own. Can't you just imagine the frustration? We are, we are right there at the brink of destiny. And here we are. There's opposition right out the gate. Doesn't mean they're in the wrong place. In fact, they're right where God wants them to be. In fact, here's one of the first principles that I want you to understand, and that is is oftentimes opposition is affirmation. Opposition is affirmation. If you're not getting opposition, you're probably not headed in the right direction. Where there's opposition, it is oftentimes affirmation that God has you exactly where he wants you to be. I saw this quote on that great uh, repository of intellectualism, Instagram. (laughs) I love this. Look at it with me. Marriage is hard. Divorce is hard. Choose your hard. Being in debt is hard. Being financially disciplined is hard. Choose your hard. Obesity is hard. Being fit is hard. Choose your hard. And if I may add, pursuing destiny is hard. Settling for less than destiny is hard. Choose your hard. Life will never be easy. It will always be hard. But we can choose our hard. Choose wisely. I'll never forget, God had... um, had clearly called me to plant a church. I had this dream of a gospel-centered disciple-making multi-ethnic church and felt led to do it in the toughest place to do it at the time, the most segregated city along black-white lines uh, in the early 2000s was Memphis, Tennessee. And um, somewhere I just kind of had it. We'd just walk right in there and all of a sudden, presto, thousands of people, half black, half white, we're gonna show up and just start loving each other. We walk into this city, and um, inside of a month, our car got broken into three times. Kid gets diagnosed, my son gets diagnosed with a rare blood disease, lands him at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Relational difficulties among the team almost immediately. 
all kinds of stress and strife, division, disunity. People who I thought were with us for the long haul, all of a sudden up and leave. I mean, and the way that I just kind of felt that, and there were times when I'm like, this is hard, I must, I must have missed it. I, I, I must have missed it. And I remember fasting and praying one time and God saying, what are you talking about? You're coming up against principalities and powers. You are storming the gates of hell. I mean, you think Satan's just gonna lay down? I mean, that, that's some of you all. You thought, man, I graduated from college, man, graduated, you know, magna cum laude or summa cum laude or thank you laude, and here you are, you just, <laughs> you've graduated, you've moved, you know, out west, man, and here you are in San Francisco, and something in you just thought it was gonna be easy. I mean, the financial beatdown you're taking, the housing mess, it's hard. Hard does not mean you've missed God's will. Oftentimes, hard means you are right where you're supposed to be. I remember when we landed here several years ago to, you know, to pastor a church out here, right there in Mountain View. Literally, we land in San Jose, and in the jetway, my wife starts weeping uncontrollably. A couple weeks later, she's diagnosed with depression. The house we were in, within six weeks, I'd spent $10,000 just getting stuff fixed. My oldest son goes off the rails. It's one thing after another. Now, I must caveat this. The reason why we moved is four years later, my, I'm just watching my wife, just she's not getting better. And I had to come to the realization that I took vows to my wife and not the church. So I'm just saying there are, there are times when you just got to discern. You do the best you can, and there's grace to cover that. That's a Holy Spirit thing. He's got to speak to you. But what I want to deposit in you is just like the children of, of Israel, Whenever there's a move of God, you're going to have your own Jordan Rivers. You're going to have your own opposition. I love it. Right out the gate in Joshua chapter 1, look at it with me. God says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. By the way, I love it. God says, hey, Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. You're it. Here's what you need to understand. When a man or woman of God dies, nothing of God dies. When a man or woman of God dies, nothing of God dies. The kingdom of God marches on. This is our moment. Praise God he's using me, but we are not the fourth member of the Trinity. 
He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? I love this. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. One translation says, do not fear and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, why is he telling them, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be, be strong and courageous. Why? Because they're They're about to get into the promised land where there's all these other secular nations and none of them have for sale signs up. In other words, God says, I ain't gonna make this easy for you. You're going to have to claim territory. And in order to claim it, you are going to have to fight. Which means you're going to experience conflict. There's opposition, There's conflict. Conflict is not a sign, again, that I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Man, my wife and I, for five years, we were part of this marriage ministry and like clockwork. Here we are on our way to bless like a thousand people to talk about how you can have a great marriage. Every single time we got on the plane, it's like World War III argument. (laughs) And then she apologizes like she should. So kidding, so kidding, so kidding. I was wrong every single time. But the conflict was just, I mean, listen, there's an unseen realm. And I'm sure your pastors have taught you this, C.S. Lewis, screw tape letters. The great extremes on one hand is to see a demon under every single rock, right? You didn't get fired from your job because of a demon. You got fired from your job because you can't get to work on time, all right? So don't blame Satan on that. But on the other hand, it's an extreme that many conservative evangelicals find themselves in. It's to ignore Satan. It's to put everything on human agency. There is an unseen realm. It is real. It is clear. You know, when when I got here and kind of everything's just breaking loose, and I just want to say the Bay Area, it's palpable. The demonic activity, it's everywhere in our country, but it is palpable here. I remember I'm just going through it, and I sit down with a pastor, And I says, look, man, I'm kind of having a pity party. Here's what's happening in my life. We're just a couple weeks in. He says, oh, yeah, let me tell you when we first moved here. When we first moved here, he says, we move into our little three, four-bedroom house. My wife and I are sleeping in our bedroom. Our three kids are in their own bedrooms. In the middle of the night at 3 a.m., all of us wake up at the same time screaming. He says, I call a meeting. We sit down in the living room. He says, what's going on? Each of us had a nightmare, the same exact nightmare. He says that would happen three more times. There are demonic influences. We need not fear them. We are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. We are more than conquerors. And if I was in a chocolate church, they'd be running around the building right now, (laughs) rejoicing and praising God. I'm not saying this to freak you out, but to say, open your eyes. You're in a battle. There's conflict that happens. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to faint or are we going to fight? I love what Will Smith says. <laughs> I'm just giving you all the intellectuals. 
Look at it with me. Will Smith says, the only thing, thing I see that is distinctly different about me is I'm not afraid to die on a treadmill. I will not be outworked, period. You might have more talent than me. You might be smarter than me. You might be sexier than me. You might be all of those things. You got it on me in nine categories, but if we get on the treadmill together, there's two things. You're getting off first or I'm going to die. It's really that simple. <laughs> this is in Duckworth's great book, Grit, but I, I think Christians need grit. I think Christians need grit. Uh, listen, I mean, we owned a house in the Bay Area, sold it. I bought like a 6,000 square foot house in Raleigh, North Carolina for $2. It's not 6,000 square feet. But you know what I lament as I pull into my neighborhood? I'm having to fight for my soul as never before. I think prosperity is a greater threat to your faith than poverty. There was just something about living in the Bay where it just felt like we were all in this street fight together. And God bless, you know, praise God, people need to hear the gospel in Raleigh, North Carolina too. But I mourn kind of the way the Bay Area, if you're a Christian man, it... It doesn't leave room for being on the fence and being cultural. You're, you're either all in or all out. Are you in the street fight? Because I promise you, when you're flatlining and you're headed out of here to meet Jesus, your last thoughts are not going to be, oh, man, should have got out of that apartment sooner. There's a sweetness, and we need you to fight. We need you to fight for your marriage. Anything that God ordains, Satan attacks, which means you're going to have to fight. My wife and I are in therapy right now. COVID was a real gift. I mean, all my trips got canceled, and I'm sitting there one night, and I'll just be honest with you. I'm going, I ain't got much to say to her. There's something that business and commuting kind of glossed over and covered and, and kind of had me living under the illusion that things were fine. And then all of a sudden, I'm working from home all day long. We're around each other all day long. So now we're sitting in therapy. We're going to be fine, but we're having to fight for that. Oneness is not the default mechanism of marriage. You have to fight for oneness. I don't know who this is for, but if you're married and you, you start at the top of the Mississippi River in Canada, I think that's where it is. I went to Bible college. I'm not sure. <laughs> if, if you're in the boat with your, with your spouse and you do nothing, you'll end up in the Gulf of Mexico. But if you want to get back up north, you got to fight. You got to row. You got to fight for that. We have to fight to steward our bodies according to the biblical vision. 
We've got to be transparent and authentic and get into community and memorize scripture and get covenant eyes. Anything that God calls and destines, you have to fight for. What have you stopped fighting for? I'm fighting for my kids, man. I have a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 16-year-old. Parenting young adults, I'm on my knees warring in the spirit, fighting. Third, they go through opposition. They go through conflict. There's over 15 battles in the book of Joshua. Over 15 battles. Finally, it's time for them to to actualize and to receive blessing. The longest section of Joshua is where they're divvying out the land. I think it's Joshua chapters 12 to 21, something like that. And I love this. I love this. Joshua 21, look at this with me. This blesses my soul. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. I'll read that again. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. What God has for you, no one can take from you. When he promises, it will happen. It will happen in your life. It will happen in your church. Listen, I'm not getting this from TBN. This is Bible. God promises it. It comes to fruition. But what happens? A couple hundred hundred years later, they end up getting deported from God's destiny. It's called the Babylonian exile. Psalm 137, there we sat by the rivers of Babylon and wept. Why did they get ousted? They forgot God. They got high on success. They got lazy. They got off mission. Listen, let me just say a word to you. Reality San Francisco, I brag about you guys all over the place, man. I mean, God's just doing a great work here. How old is this church? 11 years. Look, I planted a church in Memphis. The most dangerous period of time for our church was right around the 10-year, 11-year mark, especially if you've experienced some success. We went from 26 people in the living room to about 2,500 coming in on Sundays. And what happened to us, and you don't realize it in the, mo- in, in the moment, is that there's just this subtle drift that happens when you, when you get success. It's like I noticed the conversations changed. Everything got, kind of got focused on maintaining and budgets and staff. and we, we stopped storming the gates of hell. We went from offense to defense and didn't even know it. You're in a dangerous spot. God's blessed you. God's growing you. Praise God. Don't stop storming the gates. Stay on the offensive. Keep getting after it. Don't settle for just the size of the crowd. Don't just settle for addition. Go after multiplication. Be serious about discipleship. Keep pressing into God's presence corporately when it comes to prayer. Keep moving. What are those things that God has put in your heart that make you pound the table and weep? 
I love it. God doesn't just give them the land, but they were able to handle success at least momentarily because they had to fight for it. By the way, this is actually good parenting advice. I think the reason why we've got all these entitled kids is because we give them blessing without creating opportunities for them to push through opposition and conflict. Your kids are a lot more resilient than what you realize. Down the street here, um, it's that big tall building, the Millennium Building that's leaning. Millennium Tower. Um, I got a friend of mine, um, he's a developer, he's built a lot of buildings in San Francisco, we serve on the board together at Biola, and uh, after discerning he didn't build that building, uh, I said, tell me about that building, like what happened? He said, man, much of San Francisco is built on landfill, and he said, everybody knows it, but beneath the landfill is bedrock. When you build a building, your foundations in San Francisco have to go extra deep. You gotta get through the landfill to go into bedrock. He says the problem with the people who constructed that building is they just stopped at landfill. Foundations didn't go deep enough and now it's leaning. Friends, the worst thing God can do to you is to give you success that you do not have the character infrastructure to handle. So the reason why God doesn't just start out giving you blessing, but takes you through opposition and conflict, is he's trying to dig through the landfill of your life and get to bedrock. He wants to establish a testimony of his faithfulness in your life. You need some nothing but Jesus stories of how I had to trust God and fall on my knees and experience him for myself. Those moments in life, I, I didn't know how the bills were going to get paid. I didn't know how this thing was going, to go, was going to work out. But I leaned into him. I refused to quit. I fought. Those are stories of God's faithfulness where he's taking out his divine drill and pressing in and developing the foundation of your life and the life of this church. Finally, there's remembrance. God says, hey, Israel. I brought you through the Jordan River, stop! Get 12 stones. I want you to set up an altar of remembrance. Why? So that when you're, you and your kids, your grandkids, on a road trip, a couple decades from now, and they see this memorial, and they say, hey, what's up with that? You stop and you tell the story. That's why the Church of Jesus Christ doesn't need old people, it needs patriarchs and matriarchs. There's a difference. Patriarchs and matriarchs, um, they leverage the spiritual odometer of their walk with Jesus to press down into ensuing generations, to tell them stories, to establish their faith for a time they will not see. You need to celebrate the movements of God here. You need to build a culture of celebration. You need to build a culture of remembrance. You need to lift the gaze from your leaders and say, no, no, God used them, but this is God. I, I want to encourage you, every year you should do a church anniversary where you just stop and you celebrate the faithfulness of God. Why? It's the same reason why you've got a rear view mirror in your car. Now, rear view mirrors are smaller than your windshields for obvious reasons. They're not meant to be stared at but you need them to glance at 
Rearview mirrors give you perspective so that you can make great decisions moving forward. When I glance at the rearview mirror of God's faithfulness in my life, it fuels me to greater leaps of faith in the future. The way we do that today, I want to suggest to you, is just by journaling. I think journaling is one of the greatest rearview mirror practices or stones of remembrance practices. Recently, I was in my dad's house. My dad got saved at 14. I mean, I asked him one time. I said, Dad, how many, how many days have you missed your quiet time with the Lord? Since 1964, and Dad doesn't say this bragging. He says, I've missed about 12 days. You walk into, he's given me the death talk recently. Right? And uh, I, I drop on him Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. <laughs> and I ask him, are you a good man? Um, But he takes me to this room, and he's worked out a deal with the publisher to publish his memoirs, and this room is stacks and stacks of journals. He takes one off the shelf, and it's dated December 1972. They're pregnant with me. I read a journal entry of his prayers for me. And with tears in his eyes, he says, son, I want you to understand, from the moment we found out we were pregnant with you, I have not missed a single day praying for you. It's journaled. Faithfulness of God. We need that. We tend to get spiritual amnesia. We think it's the letters behind our name. We think it's our social network. But if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, where would we be? So I journal. Journal about my kid Miles, five years, hyper eosinophil syndrome. There's no cure for it. You can manage it through steroids. And us going to St. Jude's, five years of falling on my knees, praying with Miles right before we go to bed at night. And then five years later, 2015, the doctors, eight hours at St. Jude's. I'm like, what's going on? They says, we, we can't figure this out, but his hyper-eosinophil syndrome is completely gone. It's cured. I, I got a kid of mine who came to Corey and I one day and just said, hey, look, this Jesus stuff ain't for me. We found out later on at his Christian school, he got called the N-word every day, just devastated him, couldn't, couldn't process evangelical hypocrisy. So I just prayed for him every day, wrote those prayers down in a journal. Three years later, he came back to me and says, look, I'm not making a big deal out of this, but I just want you to understand, I I came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. I mean, those things are in the journals. And so now when I find myself just low in my faith, I take those stones of remembrance off the shelf, and I see the faithfulness of God. See, you need to stop writing off of God's faithfulness to David and Moses and Mary and Joseph and Daniel. You need to have your own first kings. You need to have your own book of Daniel. He's establishing a testimony of faithfulness in your life. Someone needs to curate that for this church. This church is not about buying a bigger building. I pray you get it. 
But that building is meant to facilitate the mission of God, which is storming the gates of hell in the bay. A man was walking through, a wood, through the woods one day. And I you know, wasn't paying attention, and all of a sudden, just kind of taking in the scenery, wasn't paying attention, he just fell off over a cliff. On his way down to his impending death, he just reached out and grabbed a branch, and, and this branch held on to him. He's suspended in midair. And he's yelling, help, help. All of a sudden, a voice from heaven cried out, hey, I got you. It's God. Guy says, help, can you help me? Voice says, do you believe me? He says, yeah, I believe you. He says, do you trust me? Guy says, yeah, yeah, I trust you. The the, the guy says, the, the, the voice from heaven says, will you do whatever I ask you to do? Guy says, yes. He says, voice from heaven comes back, let go of the branch. Guy goes, is anybody else up there? Apocryphal story to be sure. But what branches are you holding on to? Your greatest satisfactions in life are tied to your greatest sacrifices. What do you need to let go of? Some of you, your, your branch is money. Others of you, your, your branch is that relationship. Others of you, that, that, your, your branch is comfort and security. God says, I got you. What will be the testimony of this church? Will it be we played it safe? We did some nice things? Or did we say in our moment in time in history, we claimed everything God had for us. We let go of the branch as we faced opposition, engaged in conflict, settled into blessing, and cultivated the practice of remembering. So Father, I bless your people. I bless them. I believe that what lies ahead for Reality San Francisco is even greater than what's behind. I pray against the spirit of just settling and playing defense. I pray for a holy discontent in this body. There would be an insatiable hunger for more. We want to see more people come to know Jesus. We want more people discipled in their faith. We want more people sent out. I believe there's churches you want planted through this church. I believe that the next wave of spiritual leaders on the West Coast throughout our country, I believe that many of them are going to come forth through this church. I believe that in the name of Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that you would unleash your shoreline vision to your people. 
I, I pray that this vision would be overwhelming because it's beyond their capacity to imagine. Deliver us from a domesticated God. God, help us to press in and to have some nothing but Jesus stories that, can you believe that blow our mind stories of the faithfulness of God? God, I believe there's someone right now either watching online or in the room. They're weary and they wanna give up the fight. Yeah, we get that you call people to certain areas for certain seasons, we get that, we understand that, we don't look down on that. But I pray for that person, Lord God, who they're supposed to be here longer. And you're telling them to let go of the branch and to trust you. Because when we're in your presence 100 years from now, what we had in our 401ks ain't gonna matter. It's did we live on mission, and like David, did we accomplish the purposes of God in our generation? That's all that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.